You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this third lecture on Kierkegaard, I want now to examine more closely both his criticism of philosophy and the emerging notion of what Christian faith is, which will have many surprising characteristics, and it's possible for us to misunderstand, I think, those surprising characteristics. There's a story I like to tell about my first year teaching at Notre Dame. There was a visitor here, the rather imposing Father Inocentius Bohinski, a Dominican, who was a Polish historian of logic. And he would give me all kinds of unasked for advice at the drop of, I won't say a hat, he never wore a hat, but one was just an observation. He said that uh, when you're a young man, you teach far more than you know. Uh, when you're in your middle age, he said, you teach as much as you know. And then when you get old, you teach far less than you know. Well, that sounds arrogant, but it's a sense that one has in speaking about an author like Kierkegaard, whom I've devoted a half century of study and reflection, to realize that whatever you say about him is such a small sounding in what he wrote that it might seem to be necessarily a distortion. That's why I'm guided here, as I've mentioned, by Kierkegaard's own notion of what he was doing. And my thought has been, and, and time has proved this at least to my satisfaction, that when you read him following the guidelines of the point of view, to the degree that these can be extrapolated into works written after the point of view was written, you get a far more precise and coherent sense of what Kierkegaard was up to. How do you know that? By comparing the journal entries and so forth, where he is commenting often on his literary production in ways which cast a light on it. I would say that's a far more coherent view that one gets by following the point of view. And consequently, if you take just samplings along the route or routes suggested by the point of view, you're more likely to be conveying something that is essential to Kierkegaard rather than, as is quite easy to do, becoming enamored of some aspect of a book of Kierkegaard's and just talking about that independently of the role that it plays in the literature. As one might, let's say, with the concept of dread, for example, which has has rightly attracted a great deal of attention and so forth, but it's possible to talk about it in such a way that you never link up with the fact that it's a work within the literature meant to play a role in the literature. So again, a reminder of how I'm proceeding here. I'm trying to talk Kierkegaard out of Kierkegaard, not impose on it some interpretation of my own. The assumptions about philosophy that Kierkegaard makes, that is what went wrong with it, is already present in that work in which Johannes Climacus appears in the title, De Omnibus Dubitandum Et. The whole notion that the project of philosophy is somehow to call into question, to adopt a skeptical attitude, to reject tradition and so forth, is something that Kierkegaard, like many others, have been startled by at least the first time they encounter it, but you become inured to it. And so much of philosophy after Descartes just starts with this sort of 
untroubled assumption that the task of the philosopher is to be extremely skeptical about any received opinion and to accept nothing as true unless its credentials have been established in the most cogent way imaginable. Is that a possible project? De omnibus dubitandemus is meant to show us it's not a project for a human being. Huh? Now that tells us something about a critique of Kierkegaard's of modern philosophy as it stems from Descartes, that it has the woeful tendency to think that the human being is a mind, huh? a sort of disembodied mind. When Descartes arrives at what we called earlier square one of his thought as a result of methodic doubt, he has arrived at the first certainty, namely that he, a thinking something or other, exists. He doesn't have any feet, he doesn't have any toes, he doesn't have any arms, he doesn't have a body. He's a thinking something. And this creates enormous problems for Descartes. How do you put a mind like that together with a body? And it's created problems for much uh, subsequent philosophy as well. Well, Kierkegaard isn't going to go into that. He's going to say that is what human beings are. That is not what human beings are. So that if you want to talk about arriving at the truth, you better not talk about us as if were sort of disembodied minds who are floating around getting experience from we know not where and confronting some kind of epistemological problem that they better solve or they won't be able to get their bodies back in time for supper. So the way Kierkegaard will go at this in the postscript is something I want to postpone until I say a few more things about the emerging conception first of faith and then of Christianity in the philosophical fragment. If it is the case that the truth of Christianity is not something that can be established or settled by the usual kind of teaching learning that characterizes disciplines within the university, how is it that one goes about accepting it as true? How does the truth admit of being learned if the teacher is Christ? Huh? And from the point of view of reason, what Climacus uh, suggests in the philosophical fragments is that reason in looking at what is presented to it as the central truth of Christianity, namely that the eternal has come to be in time, that God has become man, is, and this is the suggestion, is presenting us with something that makes no sense. The eternal is temporal. The human is divine. This is oil and water. This is like saying, a is not A. It's like a contradiction. And this is the paradox of Christianity that is presented to us in the person of Christ. Huh? This is God become man. How can we make any sense of that? Well, what the depiction of faith is, is it's a passion, first of all. It's not an act of reason. It's not an act of will. It is a passion. And there is an unhappy passion where one arrives at this realization that this is something that collides with the ordinary categories of reason and then turns sadly away like that rich young man in the parable in Matthew. Or one acknowledges that one cannot understand this and accepts it. That is the happy passion that is faith. So faith is the acceptance of that which I cannot understand understanding that I don't understand it. Huh? So I cannot 
grasp it, I cannot accept it as true with truth being established in the usual Socratic ways, let us say, of establishing the truth. So here there is this removal of Christianity from all these comforting possibilities that the philosopher will reduce it to the limits of reason alone and then only an idiot would reject it. Or the philosopher will show that there's an absolute necessity in the historical arrival of Christianity, and I'll get around to proving that in a minute, etc. But when I do, there'll be no more mystery about the truth of Christianity. It'll be as necessary as Euclid. Huh? This is the sort of thing Kierkegaard is confronting, and by way of opposition to it, as a kind of reminder of the character of religious faith, as well as therapy for this sort of misunderstanding, he wants to shake up that kind of philosophical reader, he says the things that he does about faith as the happy passion, huh? accepting, in effect, the paradox, not because one understands it, but because one doesn't understand it. Huh? There's the only way you could accept it. So that's what faith is. Faith in the central truth of Christianity, the incarnation, is something that, in effect, amounts to withdrawing or withholding one's usual rational objections and accepting despite those. Huh? What about Christianity itself as an historical phenomenon? Remember the slogan, the motto at the beginning of the philosophical fragment. Can a historical happening be the basis for a eternal happiness? One aspect of that slogan. Is Christian truth historical? Is Christian truth historical? Do we establish the truth of Christianity by talking about how long it's been around, for example? Can we establish the truth of Christianity on the basis of biblical studies? Huh? As if we looked at the Bible as we might any other text, and somehow by studying the Bible, we would be able to conclude that this is revealed, the revealed word of God. Climacus is always there to tell us, look, you read the Bible and reflect on it because you know it's the Word of God. You don't establish it's the Word of God on the basis of reading it. That's why you reverence it before you've even read it. You don't think that it's the mere longevity of the church that proves its truth and so forth. What emerges from this is, in the fragments, a very strange devaluation of the history of the church, and indeed, you might say, of the church itself, that is, of the community of believers over time. And there is a way in which Kierkegaard seems to lend credence to the view that what Christians believe are not historical truths, that Jesus was born in Nazareth of Joseph and Mary, his parents, that he went to Jerusalem, that they went to Jerusalem to register him, that he was brought down there when he was 12. And so on. all those historical facts, as they might seem to us in the New Testament, it looks as if Kierkegaard is going to say, Christianity is not historical. Why? Because if it were, its truth could be established by the usual procedures of history. And he's here to tell us that the truths of Christianity cannot be established by historical research. Huh? Now, there are a lot of things you might say that can be established or could be established. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Was he raised in Nazareth? Did he travel? Presumably, these are things that could be established. And as I turn next time to Newman, I want to develop this aspect of Kierkegaard as a prelude to our treatment of Cardinal Newman. If there is a criticism the depiction of Christian faith and indeed of Christianity 
in Kierkegaard, in the pseudonymous works and even beyond, it is the sense that he has subjectivized Christianity so that there is no objective way to determine its truth or falsity, and consequently each of us has individually to respond to the invitation of faith, and that's one at a time. The only teacher could possibly be Christ, and this tends to give credence to that comparison of David Swenson's that I mentioned at the outset, comparison of Newman on the one hand and Kierkegaard on the other, that Newman was looking for the objectively true church so that he could join it, whereas Kierkegaard was seeking so to exist that those who existed as he did would constitute with him the true church. So the church would be, on this view, merely the aggregate of individuals who are directly related to Christ. There would be no community among them of any significant kind. And I think one of the things that is true about Swenson's characterization of Kierkegaard is that there is the devaluation of the church as an ecclesia, as a community of believers. I'm not talking about structural or bureaucratic or whatever, but as a community of believers. And of course, what such a one as Newman would notice is that it doesn't seem to allow for anything like an apostolic succession or a priesthood or sacraments and the like. It's as if each person establishes his own little arrangement with Christ and the adding up of individuals like that is merely an extrinsic arrangement rather than anything like a vital community. And there's justification, I think, for this kind of criticism, not only of Kierkegaard pseudonyms, but also of Kierkegaard himself, as we'll see in the way in which his life ended, the kind of dying fall that we see in the last year of his life. But to turn to the charge of subjectivizing truth, as you may know, one of the propositions that was condemned by St. Pius X under modernism was the notion that Christianity is not a historically true religion, or something to that effect, that his history has nothing to do with Christianity. What follows Kierkegaard, in Germany particularly, is the question, the quest of, as it came to be called in the famous work, the quest for the historical Jesus. Huh? And very often what this quest turns into is the fact that there's nothing there to be found, or there is great doubt that is cast upon most of the historical illusion that we find in the New Testament and so forth. And when Climacus looks at that sort of thing, he sort of relishes the thought that not only is there no historical underpinning for one's relationship to Christ, but that it's almost to be welcomed that all the historical evidence or all the historical discussion would tend to discredit Christian belief. So as with the description of faith that I mentioned as the happy passion that withdraws the rational objections before the paradox of the God-man, so too here with respect to speaking of Christianity, what really commends it from the point of view of these apparent attacks on it is that, yeah, let the attacks come. It is not on that sort of thing that my conviction that Christianity is true reposes or could possibly repose. Now, I have come to think that this is a strong and powerful and important aspect of the fragments, and one ought to stress the strength of it, first of all, what is right about it. What is animating Kierkegaard, I think, is the right and strong conviction that Christian faith 
is not something that we achieve. It is not something that we arrive at by certain kinds of historical inquiry and so on and so forth. It's just not that sort of thing. If I accept what Christianity teaches, I am accepting something that is beyond the reach of reason. And I accept it in that way. I accept it as a mystery. I submit my mind to the demands of faith and say, Christ is human and divine. Do I understand that? No, I don't understand it. Could I, if I were a theologian, reflect on it in various interesting ways and so forth? Theologians have done that from time immemorial. Does their reflection remove from the necessity of believing it the incarnation? No. It presupposes it, and it's just as much a presupposition after the theological disquisition as it was before. This is the strength. I think it not to be in any way underestimated of the Kierkegaardian position. He is calling our attention to the gratuitousness of faith to the fact that it is not an achievement. It is not a conclusion of some kind of inquiry. It is a gift. That is, it seems to me, just a reminder that perhaps is always needed, is always needed. And if it is the case, as I showed it was the case, that Climacus rejects the whole notion of natural theology and does so, as I hope to at least have indicated, on pretty shaky ground, what is driving him there is he doesn't want there to be any opening wedge to the notion that you can establish the truth of Christianity in that sort of way, the way in which we establish just about any other truth that would enter into our lives. Christianity is different. Huh? not just another thing. It is unique. And we're saying here, God became man. And however familiar that may become to us, however much a theme of art and poetry and so forth, so it just seems to be part of the air we breathe, Kierkegaard is here to tell us that's a danger too. That's a danger because we might begin to think that it's just an ordinary kind of thing that we are accepting and he's here to tell us again it's extraordinary. Okay, that's the strength here. And I don't think we should ever underestimate or fail to be grateful to Kierkegaard for insisting on this. But I do think that certainly in the fragments he insists on it in a way that turns out to be somewhat questionable. And I put this sometimes in this way, he doesn't appreciate sufficiently the asymmetrical relationship between the natural and the supernatural or the historical and the believed. And let me explain what I mean by that. Kierkegaard is right as rain in thinking that no matter how large a grant a group of historians got from the NEH and however long they would have to devote to this project, that is to Christianity, the kinds of methods and techniques which are appropriate to historians, to literary critics, to scientists and so forth are never such that they could prove the truth of Christianity. Okay, that is, it seems to me, absolutely foundational, absolutely firm. There's no way in which. So from history to faith, it can't be done. But this is the asymmetrical relationship that I think Kierkegaard forgets. And that is this, that when I believe as a Christian, I believe not only that Jesus is the Son of Man, I believe he grew up in Nazareth. 
I believe he was born in Bethlehem. I believe he made these trips. I believe he did this, said that, and all those other things. Huh? And the fact that some of those might be established by historical means would not be enough for me to know that they are the Word of God. But once I have accepted the package, I have accepted all kinds of historical truths as well. Part of the package of Christianity is a whole conjuries of historical facts. And it seems to me what Climacus sometimes suggests is you could remove all of them. They could all be disproved or called into question and Christianity would not be affected. I think this is uncharacteristically this is for him to underestimate the very incarnational aspect of Christianity. So that what he wants to say is absolutely true. From history to faith, you'll never get there. But once you have the faith, you are AO ipso, by that very fact, accepting historical truth. Those historical truths, which are part of the package, they can be talked about by historian. Beliefs that we have about scripture, they can be talked about by literary critics and so forth. But our belief in scripture as the word of God wasn't derived from that sort of thing, and we're not worried that it's going to be upset by it either. So too, historians can question, they do it all the time, different ones and different generations, the historicity of the Christian story. And they're saying that we can blow it out of the water by using the usual methods of historical research. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Believers don't worry about it, but they know that there are historical truths that they accept insofar as they accept Christ as the Son of God and as incarnate as the Son of Mary and so forth. This is not just ahistorical. It's not something apart from the historical. It includes it. That, I think, is what Pope St. Pius X had in mind in that proposition in the condemnation of modernism that I have mind. He's not saying historians in the usual thing, since can't look into the historical dimension of Christianity. What he's insisting on, there's no way in which you can have Christianity without that historical dimension. And Kierkegaard, through Climacus, sometimes seems to suggest that this is the way it is. I think that's unfortunate. I want to look next at his depiction of subjectivity as the truth, and the truth is subjectivity. Kierkegaard's alleged, and perhaps real, subjectivizing of Christianity is often, the discussion of that often centers on an extremely important part of the concluding unscientific postscript to the philosophical fragment. It's actually part one, chapter two of that massive book, that I flashed at you a number of times, my 1952 copy thereof. And in that section that I mentioned of the concluding unscientific postscript, the chapter reads, subjectivity is the truth. Subjectivity is the truth. The truth is subjectivity. And there we find this definition of faith. Climacus now writing in the postscript, which he says is meant to give an historical cloak to the depiction of Christianity that he has given in the fragments, which may be something that you'd want to take into account in terms of what I said about the apparent non-recognition on the part of Climacus of the asymmetrical relationship between faith and history. In this postscript, he gives as the definition of faith the following. Faith is an objective uncertainty 
held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness. And he goes on to say, this is the definition of faith, the best definition that can be given. An objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness. That's what the faith is. Okay. Now, anyone who reads the postscript is going to be struck by something that might seem not to follow from other things that I have said, and that is the analogy Climacus draws between the moral or the ethical on the one hand and the religious on the other. And I find this to be very important. And if you ask yourself what account or how that account of faith that I've just given a couple of times, how that would relate to discussions of moral action, if you've been well brought up and have taken philosophy courses, little lights are going to go off in your mind. Huh? And you're going to perhaps remember, and I'll come back to this after I've discussed both Kierkegaard and Newman, you're going to think of Aristotle's discussion in the ethics, the Nicomachean ethics, of practical truth as opposed to theoretical truth. And indeed, as you begin part two of the postscript, it is the problem of truth that is put before us. And as you look at the discussion, it's going to look like the way in which the opening chapter of the fragments did, it's going to look like just the recalling of certain givens of philosophical literacy. And what Climacus says in the passage in the postscript that I have in mind is this, truth. There are two possible explanations of truth. Either truth is a relationship between being and thought. Huh? Now, either you say that truth consists in thought's conformity with being, or you would hold that truth consists in being's conformity with thought. And we figure, here we go. I mean, this sounds like a kind of thumbnail sketch of the history of epistemology or the movement from a realist definition or account of truth. It's the conformity of the mind's judgment with the way things are, on the one hand, or an idealist conception of truth where you're saying, look, what I mean by truth is that things fit in the categories of human thinking, not that the mind is somehow relating to something out there un characterizable otherwise. So we figure, oh, this is just an ordinary kind of philosophical discussion. But then Climacus said, of course, it all depends on what you mean by being. The relationship between thought and being, that's what truth is. And then he suggests, what if the being involved is a human being? And then the question of truth becomes, what is the relationship between thought and existence or action, we might say? Or, to make it even more traditional and Aristotelian, what is the relationship between knowing what we ought to do and being it? What is the relation between the thought that this is what one ought to do and existing in such a way that it's in conformity with that thought. You see what happens here, in short, is that a discussion that seems to begin in some kind of transcendent epistemological outer space suddenly is brought down to bear on human action. 
And it is here that Kierkegaard's conception of existence is found that gained such currency in post-Second World War thought in existentialism, as it was called. And we all kind of use the term under that influence without perhaps always being aware of it. But Kierkegaard is interested in the difference between, this is the way it emerges, thinking what that I ought to do such and such and existing in that way. So the relationship between thought and existence is the relationship between cognitive awareness of what I ought to do and the execution of that knowledge or the implementation of that knowledge or the assimilation of that knowledge or existing in that knowledge. And that is the transition to the definition of faith with which I began. A objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness. That's faith, he said. But we can say, well, he's talking, first of all, about the way in which the judgment that is embedded in this concrete action can be said to be true to the rule or guidelines with which I began. And here we are in familiar territory. And then the notion of subjective truth does indeed, as I suggested it would, it does indeed echo or have echoes of what Aristotle called practical truth because by practical truth, Aristotle meant precisely the truth of the action. And of course, a human action has knowledge embedded in it. And the discourse whereby from which the action emerges is through universals or generalities to the appropriation or application of those to the here and now. I won't go on about that, but you can see that there is here a kind of great analogy Climacus is relying on in the postscript. The analogy between the analysis of human action and the relationship of general knowledge to the particular decision or choice on the one hand and what is proposed to us in faith propositionally and accepting it as true. Okay, so how exactly might we do that? I'm going to do this kind of rapidly because it's more of a suggestion and it's something that you can yourself verify as you read this section of the postscript, part two, chapter two, and in the accompanying lessons to these lectures that will be on our website, you will find this develop more an indication as to where you might go and read. But just a suggestion now for our purposes at the moment, if we think of what Aristotle would call the practical syllogism, the major premise of that is going to be some guideline for action. And it might be one that is an absolute, such as you shall not murder. There's never a time when you should murder. But the question that arises when we act is, does this count as murder? Huh? And if it does and so forth, then what do I do? And if I act contrary to my recognition that this is a moral absolute, well, that's what we mean by a moral fault. So it's possible for us not to act in conformity with our knowledge. Now, I mentioned absolutes, and we might think the definition that he gives of faith certainly wouldn't be verified there because he's talking about an objective uncertainty. But the way I talked about it, is this murder, suggests that even with moral absolute, there's a lot to be done on the part of the human agent between that kind of awareness and this action. 
And of course, most of our guidelines in action are not absolutes. They're for the most part. By and large, this is what we ought to do. Rarely, however, the exception could be appropriate. So what's needed here is not simply, and this would be the hookup that I'll try to develop at the end of our discussions of Kierkegaard and Newman, there has to be an appetitive determination or quality of the agent if the knowledge sequence is going to work, if you're going to move from generalities to this action in conformity with those. In other words, there is a subjective presupposition for practical truth. And Kierkegaard's insistence on the definition of faith as an objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness has this application. If you looked at, let us say, any article of the creed and ask yourself if you could establish its truth just in terms of some kind of research or inquiry, as I've indicated, Kierkegaard is pretty persuasive in showing that that would be a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. But what the Christian task is, is the application of those articles of the creed, of the Sermon on the Mount and so forth, to our lives here and now, again and again and again, for as long as we live. And there is an element, obviously, of uncertainty as to how this applies here and now. How to this person as opposed to that person. So I'm suggesting, this is a very ironic suggestion. It is possible to take that definition of faith as a subjective appropriation of an objective uncertainty and say, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. There is a way in which one could say that's the Christian task. That is the Christian task. And that is to be in a certain way, to exist in a certain way, and so forth. Does this mean that Kierkegaard is simply dismissing as unimportant the reflection on Christian truth that goes on in theology and so forth? I'll now want to turn to that as a kind of concluding element in this presentation of the thought of Kierkegaard as religious thinker. Well, I brought this presentation of Kierkegaard as religious thinker to what might seem to be a pretty off-putting conclusion, and that is the reduction of Christianity to kind of private or individual responses to it, where one could not talk about the truth of Christianity independently of these individual acts. And that probably, it ought to bother us in this way at least. We might want to say, well, there ought to be some way in which, first of all, you could establish that Christianity is true, and then you talk about people assimilating it. Can't we do that? And Kierkegaard is saying, no, you can't do that. It would be kind of nice and so forth, but from beginning to end, whatever the tradition of the Christian community over the centuries, the whole thing depends upon this submission of the mind to a revelation which is not uh, comprehensible by the human mind. Now, in insisting on this sort of thing, what Kierkegaard is trying to do is to save Christianity from a kind of lethal embrace on the part of certain kinds of philosophers, where we're going to save its respectability by, in effect, altering its nature essentially. And Kierkegaard is involved in a rescue operation. And we have to remind ourselves that the literature is therapeutic. It has in mind a confused reader. And it is going to use rhetorical devices that will hit that reader. And in such a way that something might happen 
for that reader that otherwise might not. Does this suggest that the Kierkegaard of the literature might very often say things which are exaggerations, which are hyperbolic, which are more than he himself might want to say in order to shake up someone who has become so confused as to think that Christianity is merely a intellectual project among others. So we might say what he's after here is an attack on the Enlightenment. In this, he, like Newman, as we will see, was ahead of the wave. I mean, now there, there's nothing more familiar to us than being told that the Enlightenment experiment has failed. Well, these were men who were living at a time when it seemed to be in the ascendancy who were drawing attention to its deficiencies. But let me put it now in the kind of terms that will enable us to move from Kierkegaard to Newman. I should say this, that when Kierkegaard describes what he is doing, I asked, is this therapeutic, and so forth, he once describes himself as a writer with Luther, with Martin Luther. And he says this, Martin Luther was a corrective, not a norm. Huh? And as long as he was functioning as a corrective, he had the effect that was desired. But when it's turned into a norm, Kierkegaard, the Lutheran, says, then it begins to get distorted. I am a corrective and not a norm, Kierkegaard says about his own literature. And that suggests that we always have to read it. This is why I put such emphasis on the point of view. We always have to read it in terms of what the telos or purpose of the literature was. And it's to address certain kinds of confusion about what Christianity is, the usual kind in terms of trying to con ourselves into thinking that living a sensuous life is somehow just a cunningly disguised Christian life and so forth, or the various ways in which we can kid ourselves that adjusting to the world is really a way of being a deeper kind of Christian. But more importantly for our purpose, this has been this attack on a kind of enlightenment assumption as to what religious belief is and what the relationship is between reason and faith. Now, here's the transitional discussion. Isn't what Kierkegaard is maintaining, at least through Ioannis Klimakos and in the fragments and in the postscript, isn't what he is maintaining what we would call fideism? Huh? Well, what's fideism? Fideism, let's say, is holding that what one believes religiously is not only not supported by anything that one knows, it is utterly unaffected by what one knows. That is, it floats free of all of these other things that we do with our mind. Huh? And it's just todo cello different and can't be described except in negative terms that can never be negative enough. Huh? That Christianity isn't that, it's nothing like that, it's totally different, it's a happy passion in the fragment sense and so forth. Is this a legitimate kind of misgiving about Kierkegaard? I think it is, certainly about his pseudonymous stance. There are many eminent, or there are some eminent, they're eminent because they're in this group, Kierkegaardians who have tried to show that the ultimate upshot of Kierkegaard's reflections on Christianity is not to render Christianity irrational, but to show the appropriate relationship between reason and the faith. Nonetheless, as I said about the discussion of Christianity as historical, 
with respect to the fragments. I think Kierkegaard is insufficiently, let us say, aware, maybe on purpose and maybe for therapeutic reasons, I'll leave that an open question, but he's certainly insufficiently aware of the fact that, again, as I've said several times before, while it is absolutely true that historical research about biblical time or literary research about the Bible is never going to establish the truth of Christianity. That seems, you know, the more you reflect on it, you figure, whoever thought otherwise. But it's the flip side of that that we find in Climacus that's so surprising, that once you've got the faith, these other things, the historical, the biblical, and so forth, are not important. They're incidental. They could be jettisoned, and you'd still have the faith. And that sounds like fetism. Now, whether that is Kierkegaard's own sustained opinion would be the sort of thing that Kierkegaardian students will, of course, argue about. The end of Kierkegaard's life is certainly something that one reads about with sadness. In publishing, as he did, with such frantic swiftness and in such number, he, in effect, exhausted his personal fortune. He was the one who published himself. Uh, a publisher didn't take on the risk and so forth to bring him out. He would, in effect, deal with the printer, get the things published, get them out where people could know that they were available, and this cost him a lot of money. His books did not sell. They weren't bestsellers in Copenhagen. That's what I meant by saying earlier, it's an illusion on our part to think that because when we think of 19th century Denmark, Kierkegaard just blots out the landscape. But at the time, in his own time, of course, that simply wasn't the truth. But if you look at the chronology of Kierkegaard's life, one of the things that struck me just the other day looking at chronology in preparation for these meetings, the number of times he moved in Copenhagen moving apartments, moving houses, moving here, moving there. It's almost a blur. I mean, remember, he was 42 years old when he died. In the course of 10 or 12 years, he just seemed to have moved all over town. And that kind of surprise, was it connected with the fact that he was betting his personal fortune on this literary project? And it's almost as if there's something uncanny about the way that as his money runs out, his health runs out. And he dies broke, in effect, because everything has gone into this enormous task that he undertook. And if there's anything that comes through to us as we read his journals, it's the sense of vocation. This wasn't just something he decided to do. It was something he was called to do. And even though he's always careful to distinguish between one who, as a pastor, speaks with authority and himself as being without authority, nonetheless, he is driven by the sense that he is meant to do this. And if he eschews that country rectory, that vicarage that he dreams of throughout his life, it's because he thinks he would be unfaithful to what he's supposed to do if he did this. So there is a vocational aspect to Kierkegaard which led to this just draining of his fortune to bring about this particular task. And then at the end, and this is the dying fall that I mentioned. A bishop died in Copenhagen, and the preacher referred to him as a worthy successor of the apostles. And Kierkegaard went up and smoked. Huh? He didn't think this man resembled any apostle he'd ever read about. Huh? And he thought the only thing 
that the Danish Lutheran Church could do in honesty was to issue a little disclaimer that there was absolutely no relationship between the Danish Lutheran Church and the New Testament. Huh? If they did that, everything would be clear, it'd be truth and advertising, and no problem. But to get up and say of some man, and we needn't describe, he certainly wasn't in any way a man of irregular life or shocking habit, but he wasn't an apostle. And Kierkegaard just went ballistic at the suggestion that a man who had lived as this man had, this comfortable life, could somehow be likened to the apostle. This led to the series of pamphlets that are called the moment or the instant. And they are sustained and painful to read attacks on the established church in Denmark. And when Kierkegaard fell ill, was taken to the hospital, when he was asked if he wanted a visitation by a minister, his brother was a bishop in the Danish Lutheran Church, eventually Kierkegaard said, no, no. He did not recognize the church. So here is where some of the paradoxes that I mentioned earlier about a way of talking about Christian faith that so fragments Christian believers that there's no relationship among them, and the whole notion of a church and of sacraments and so forth tends to, to disappear. So, of course, if you held that kind of view, why would you want someone coming in with you at the end? Well, you might think of a lot of scriptural reasons why you might want that, but nonetheless, Kierkegaard, in all consistency with his last position, just rejects all the consolations of Christian ministry. So we're left there with an isolated, tragic, broken, and broke individual at the end of his life. An heroic figure, I think, in many respects. I would tend to want to push as far as I could a kind of benign interpretation of the pseudonymous literature in the light of the purpose of the pseudonymous literature and to argue that there are certain kinds of rhetorical excess that are justified in such a literature to bring about the effect that he was seeking to achieve. Nonetheless, puzzles remain. And for a Catholic, of course, one can perhaps see here a kind of logical result of the Reformation, the kind of increasing isolation of the believer, and no one is going to tell me what Scripture means, no one is going to get between me and God, and so forth. There are all kinds of ways in which this sort of thing was said initially, which are not terribly surprising, but when we think of poor Soren Kierkegaard on his deathbed, uh, there is a sad way in which one might see uh, this as uh, one of the upshots of the Reformation. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.